0: Welcome to the Progression Health podcast. This is episode 15, and I'm here with academic and researcher Robert West. Robert, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. It's great to, great to
1: be with you. Um, so I'm a, what they call a professor emeritus uh, in health psychology at University College London. Emeritus has nothing to do with merit. It has to do with the fact that I retired, um, but I'm still working. So they stopped paying me, but I still do stuff. That's what emeritus means. So, uh, and I work, I am attached to the Department of Behavioural Science and Health in the Institute of Epidemiology and Healthcare at University College London.
0: Brilliant. So I was going to say, what's your area of research currently, but it's kind of, you're, you're retired. So um, obviously you're very passionate, or, or would it be fair to say you're very passionate about your work, if you're still working and you're retired. So could you talk a little bit about that first?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I I probably, I wouldn't, people do think I'm passionate because I sound passionate sometimes, but uh, I'm not sure that I'm passionate, but I do care. Uh, And uh, like a lot of uh, academics, when you uh, get to the end of the, well, actually, I chose to retire, I could have carried on. Um, But uh, I wanted to focus my attentions on a few core projects, um, which meant, Uh, taking the opportunity that I had to give up on um, my uh, sort of more leadership commitments, uh, which uh, were taking a lot of time. So what I'm currently working on now um, are a number of projects. But one of them is a project that is uh, led by my uh, wife and uh, academic partner, which is Professor Susan Michie, um, also at UCL. And this is a project called the Human Behaviour Change Project. And it's an incredibly ambitious project, Uh, But uh, and it will come off uh, in some iteration, uh, whether the first or second or third, who knows. But the idea is to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to automatically uh, extract, using natural language processing, information from reports of behavior change intervention evaluations and to use uh, uh, AI and uh, machine learning to then predict what will happen in new scenarios. Uh, So uh, when you're, whether you're developing an intervention or a policy, um, it will give you a sense from the literature of what to expect in a given population, in a given setting. Um, and so the process will be largely automated. At least the the, the sort of hard grind uh, of that process, the you know, the data extraction and the basic prediction. Um, and we're actually in the last year of the project, and um, we've been working with a number of universities and IBM Research, uh, who <coughs> who are sort of leaders in natural language processing and predict- and machine learning and computer science department. Uh, and so we're making some progress, but it's uh, in the process, we're discovering an awful lot about how research is done and how it's reported, uh, which has actually led me to my other main uh, area, uh, which uh, I want to pursue, which is to uh, create an AI system, online AI system to support people in writing up their papers. because. What we found is that even with the best state-of-the-art natural language processing system, it's really hard and actually well-nigh impossible to extract key information uh, from scientific papers, even in top journals, because very often the information's not there. Uh, If it is there, it's expressed in a way which makes it incredibly difficult to synthesise with information from other studies and so on. And so, if we can start from the other end and get researchers to uh, to design and write up their studies uh, using a system which makes it sort of machine friendly and human friendly, uh, then we can do a big service to humankind.
0: Yeah, writing even I've done literature reviews. They are a nightmare. It's, <laughs> it's a just, nightmare.
1: It's a nightmare.
0: <laughs> it's just. Uh, there's so much information. It's so hard to say. It, it comes down to kind of almost personal preference, or you know, the preference of your uh, your research advisor to say which piece of information is more important or more relevant, and um, you end up cutting out a lot of stuff. And you're kind of like, I hope this is not you know more relevant uh, what I'm keeping it, in.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, obviously there are guidelines. There's rules for systematic reviews and so on, and and what we call meta analysis, meta analyses to combine. The data from different studies, but anyone who's done one of these things will know: a) how time-consuming it is; b) how uh, frustrating it is trying to extract the information. Often it's not there, or often it's it's uh, expressed in a way that you can't actually use. But also, um, you you have to do it in in an incredibly focused way. You know, does for example, uh, we're just doing a review at the moment. Does mindfulness uh, training Help with people stopping smoking. Okay. Well, there's different sorts of mind- mindfulness training. You know, there's there's uh, there's not just one sort. And anyway, what people? You know, as some people may be better suited to it than others. Um, what other factors might be coming into play? For example, does it make a difference whether you're um, delivering it through an app or face to face or whatever? Now. You, doing this, that kind of exercise um, by hand with a, a human doing it is incredibly time-consuming. And then you discover that there's something that you haven't quite got or you've missed, and you've got to do it all over again. It's very frustrating. But with this system, all the information would already be there, and it would be a very
0: simple matter to extract it uh, and then use it. So sort of let AI do the legwork. Sense, that yeah, sense?
1: exactly. Let AI do the stuff that it's good at and human intelligence, HI, <laughs> do the stuff that we're good at. And um, so I've been incre- I was incredibly impressed. Um, and your listeners, if they're at all interested in this, I highly recommend it. A book by Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion uh, called Deep Thinking. Um, he, he in that book, he puts it really well uh, because, of course, chess has become. A really good example of the combination of artificial intelligence and human intelligence because now all grandmasters would use computers in their preparation uh, because it can do things and go through lines tactical lines and so on at speed that would take them ages to do and then they and then they can do the sort of the more strategic stuff and i think that's that's what we, we're going to see in the future in so many areas that uh, Humans are good at strategic thinking, at flexibility, at um, putting stuff together. You know, sort of sideways thinking. Computers are really good at number crunching, at extracting information and, and reasoning with it, and doing stats and so on. So let's let the computer do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Get rid of all the boring, monotonous stuff, and let us focus on the exciting, morning, lot stuff. Yeah. Uh, what's the project that you're working on with, with Susan? What's the I guess overarching aim, or what would you hope to achieve with that big project?
1: With the human behavior change project, uh, we, it, we're using smoking cessation, stopping smoking as the use case, because it's an area that has some very good research with clear outcomes. And it happens to be also the area that I spent most of my career doing work in. So I know it quite well. Um, what we're uh, hoping by this time next year is that we will have a system that uh, at least reasonably well can extract an, um, about 80 or so uh, different types of information from reports, which is more than most systematic reviews would extract. Uh, you know, Obviously the outcome, characteristics of the population, the, na- uh, the characteristics of the intervention, what, what they included and so on. Uh, to extract that information, feed it into a machine learning system, um, actually, what we're working on at the moment is something which is quite state of the art, which is combining machine learning with a, what they call a semantic reasoning uh, process. So machine learning on its own can do some fantastic things, but it could also go off on ludicrous chat tangents. And it also needs a huge amount of data to work with before it can start to deliver the goods. Um, what in the old days artificial intelligence used to do is used to use semantic reasoning or logical reasoning um and that fell foul of the problem that that with logic you get what's known as a combinatorial explosion of inference so once you've got a few propositions in your logic uh system you can easily get to you know ludicrous numbers of propositions most of which are of no interest at all and so Um, And so people sort of abandoned that a bit and went to machine learning. But what we're doing is we're sort of going halfway back and saying, well, we can use machine learning, but we can guide it with things that we know uh, follow logically. So, for example, if we know uh, that, I mean, to give you a simple example with smoking we know that if you, if the, the longer you go from the quit date, the more likely you are to relapse. So if you see a bit of data which shows, um, a higher quit rate later than early, you know, there's something wrong uh, because you can't, you know, it's by logically, you can't uh, have uh, be six months abstinent without also being three months absent. It's a very simple example, but there's loads of these sort of things that you can plug into the machine learning system to constrain its, uh, um, uh, its sort of search process, Uh, And that means that it is you can you can confine it into channels that um, give it much more accurate prediction. That's the theory. That's what we're working on at the moment. So um, I'm reasonably confident we'll do it. So so we'll end up with a system that hopefully um, will be a sort of proof of principle in smoking cessation and actually physical activity as well. um, That uh, uh, that people will then want to take forward, and, and we certainly
0: and to do that ourselves as well. Great, yeah, something I really like about your research is that you're very uh, experienced and you've done lots of research, but it's very practical. It's, you know, it's it's a lot around health really. So um, smoking cessation, you have an app as well actually, which I saw, so um, smoking cessation, what are kind of like some of the rates currently of uh, smokers around the world? And then what are some of the biggest things you've learned that let's say, for example, someone knows a smoker or they are smoking themselves that they could apply in their own lives. Yeah, so there's a, there is a lot of research that's been
1: done uh, and a lot of it hasn't been applied yet, although some of it has. Um, so what's been happening globally uh, with smoking rates is that uh, they were going up pretty steadily um, for many decades. And now uh, globally, probably the prevalence of smoking is, is fairly flat, might be coming down a little bit but it's coming down uh, reasonably fast in countries like the UK, the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. Uh, Europe, it's not really, uh, the rest of Europe, I should say, <laughs> as a Brit, we're, uh, um, you know, it's not really coming down and they're not really, to be honest, doing much about it. And, and some countries in the world it's going up. Ru- uh, countries like Russia uh, you know, have very high smoking prevalence. Um, China does, but although China i mean many countries in the world smoking is very much a male thing, and, and the smoking rates among women are much much lower so for example, in China um, uh, around well over, probably somewhere between fifty and sixty percent of men smoke and about three percent of women so that gives you an idea you know, uh, of the difference um, now what's, what what we 're finding is you know there are now uh, a lot of things that you can do to support your uh, quit attempt, if you make a quit attempt. Uh, and some of these are, are pharmaceutical products. Um, one is called Champix or Chantix in the United States, uh, which actually got a bit of a bad press, but uh, mainly in the States, not so much elsewhere, because um, there were worries about um, psychiatric side effects of it. Um, I was actually involved in a study, I should declare a conflict of interest here, I was working with Pfizer at that time, involved in a randomised trial to assess the safety of uh, Chantix, Um, and uh, as a result of that study, the FDA uh, removed what they call a black box warning, which was uh, that they they were, um, I think, rightly persuaded that um, Although it looked as though there might be an issue with serious neuropsychiatric side effects, uh, in fact that probably wasn't the case. Um, and uh, but there are side effects. I mean, drugs all have side effects, and we always have to watch out for it. But that's one. But the one that I um, uh, and of course there's things like e-cigarettes, which I know are very controversial in the United States. Um, uh, funnily enough, not so much in countries like the UK, where uh, again, this is my opinion. Um, I think the uh, the health uh, authorities have got it about right in terms of um, uh, making sure that you don't get youth uptake which is the big worry in the United States but at the same time making sure that smokers who uh, decide that they want to stop smoking have this as a, as a way of, of doing it and it does help so it, it's not a game cha- it's not the game changer that a lot of people I think thought it might be um, but it is another tool in the armory in the United States, I think it's slightly different because the United States has a very different sort of, um, how would you say, it, sort of commercial atmosphere. And so, in the states, you've had you know, pretty shocking advertising, you know, which is obviously aimed at uh, children to get them to uh, take up vaping. But that would completely banned the in the United Kingdom. There's no chance of that sort of thing. And and you see the difference that in the UK. You know, really very few people, uh, kid, very few kids smoke, uh, sorry, vape. And um, uh, just about all the vapors are people who are smokers or ex Um, But anyway, the thing I wanted to say, which I think for me is the big one, is a drug called cytosine. Uh, it's uh, C-Y-T-I-S-I-N-E. And if, any, if you try and type it into Word, it'll try and convert it to cytosine. Uh, which is the amino acid, um, but cytisine is a plant alkaloid, um, and it was the very first smoking cessation drug ever licensed, that, and hardly anyone has ever heard of it, um, but it was, it was. It was produced in Bulgaria in the 1960s, um, and it's, uh, it comes from uh, mainly from laburnum seeds, It's an extract from laburnum seeds. And laburnum seeds are actually uh, poisonous. And the reason they're poisonous is because of cytosine. But that's because you're you're getting a massive dose of it. If you uh, take cytosine in the sort of doses that are are therapeutic, uh, then uh, it's a chemical that looks to the body a lot like nicotine, but it doesn't have the sort of rewarding, addictive properties of nicotine. And so what it does, rather like Chantix, in fact, very like Chantix, is it blocks the neuronal receptors so that nicotine can't get on them. It gives you enough activity in the brain pathways to reduce the craving for a cigarette, but without giving you any of the positive satisfaction of smoking at all. And um, so anyway, this drug um, has been around for donkey's years. uh, uh, And, uh, is very, very popular. It's the, by far the most popular smoking cessation drug in countries like Poland. But most people in the world uh, haven't heard of it. And I think um, its day will come because we did a randomized controlled trial, um, which we published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the top medical journals, back in 2011, randomized placebo controlled trial, uh, showing very clear effectiveness of cytosine in helping people to stop. Um, Natalie Walker in New Zealand has uh, done did another trial showing that it looked as though it was more effective than nicotine replacement therapy. And there's now quite a few trials out there showing that it's very clearly safe. It is effective, um, and and this is the key. This is this is the key that I'm sort of leading up to. Um, it's off patent, which means that any generic manufacturer could pick it up and run with it and when we did our trial uh back in 2011 the uh the cost of a full course of treatment was about three euros which is about three dollars full course of treatment at a time when other smoking cessation drugs were costing literally hundreds so i see i see cytosine in the long term as kind of like the aspirin of smoking cessation actually i may not have made that uh, term up. I think I did, but it's possible that I've just forgotten who actually made it up. But It's a great term.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, credit where it's due. You've done the work already, so you're, you're able to have a little bit of credit on a term like that. <laughs> um, so so smoking cessation, anyone who doesn't know and is listening, is just quitting smoking, basically, or stopping smoking. Yeah. Yep. Um, so then how could what you've learned in terms of, uh, let's just call it like habit change, you know stop and smoke mm. how was it how to carry over to like other kind of habits that people typically are trying to stop so what are some habits that people are commonly trying to to change and then what are some typical changes they can make um that are kind of like across the board uh, effective approaches if there are any because i know every habit it can be individual
1: yeah every habit is individual but you but there are some broad principles as well and, and um and i think the, uh, probably the single most important broad principle is understanding uh, this age old uh, meme, as it were, before there were memes, uh, that uh, our, the human, our, our brains essentially come in two parts. They come in the part, it, it, the part which uh, evolved uh, many, many millions of years ago, what uh, you might call the animal brain, some people call it the lizard brain, um i think it's better than a lizard brain i think it's uh, uh, it's got more going for it than a lizard but say let's say the animal brain this is our emotions our drives our habits our instincts and all that kind of stuff and then the human brain uh, which is the clever part the cl- the part that talks to us and we talk to, you know we talk to it and uh, and it, the the part that plans and the part that says part that says i really should stop smoking or i should cut down on my alcohol intake, or I should do more exercise, uh, whatever it is. But the key insight there is that the human brain doesn't get to control our behavior directly. It has to work through the animal brain. So it's not enough for a person to just come up with the idea, I should do this. It's got to turn into into the feeling, I want to do this, or I need to do. And the trick in behavior change and self, self-regulation is how in every crucial moment, you know, when you're being offered a drink or when you see a very tasty snack or 2nd you're thinking about having second helpings or, uh, or you're in bed and you're thinking whether you, you should go out for a run, at that moment, you've got to find ways in which the, the human brain can communicate through the animal brain into uh, influencing your behavior. And the way, one way that is often uh, talked about for doing that is like strengthening the rider and taming the horse. So you just think of us as a horse and a rider and our animal brain is the horse and the human brain is the, uh, the animal brain is the horse and the human brain is the rider. And the human brain can't tell the horse what to do, but it has to work through the horse to get this thing done. And, and, and of course, now we know that there are many, many ways of doing that. So taming the horse, for example, I talked about cytosine and varenicline. Those drugs, they're, they're like appetite suppressants for nicotine hunger. They, tame, they, dry, they take down that drive to smoke that the, uh, that the person experiences. But on its own, that wouldn't be enough. You know, you can't just give someone varenicline or Champix or Chantix or cytosine uh, and think, oh, well, they're gonna stop smoking. That doesn't happen um you that's just one side of the equation you've got to sort of be bearing down with the uh, with the clever part of the brain the human brain on that uh, process as well so um what are the so that is strengthening the rider and taming the horse is is the key proposition here in self-regulation how are you going to get yourself to do things that you set out to do and you want to do um, on the strengthening the rider part of it uh there's there's now quite a a decent amount of research showing that if you form really specific if-then plans that are so specific that when the moment comes that you could go off the rails or you, you, you know, do the thing that you said you weren't going to do, you remember the plan and you know exactly what it is you have to do to implement that plan, then you're more likely to succeed. Vague plans are hopeless, vague plans, you know, I'm going to try not to drink too much, I'm going to try to do more exercise. That's not going to get you anywhere. Specific if-then plans. In the jargon, in health psychology, they're called implementation intentions. Um, but they're basically specific if-then plans. And so what you're trying to do is, is, is anticipate those moments when you're going to be tempted uh, to do something or you're going to fail to do something that you set out to do that's one example um, one one that I think is is tremendously important uh, and if you can do it is is for me almost like the atom bomb of behavior change uh, and, and it's the atom bomb of behavior change because if you can do it it's massive you know it really uh, is a very powerful tool um, weapon even uh, but it's really hard, <laughs> you know. Fortunately, atom bombs are hard to make, otherwise the world would probably have been blown up several times over by now. Um, and that is, this is identity change, identity. And uh, our identities are incredibly powerful drivers of our behavior for good and ill. If you think about the you know, people who do incredible feats of, of endurance or self-sacrifice, Uh, then, you know, a a lot of this is being driven by who they are, who they see themselves, their core, their being, whether it's uh, spiritual or religious or humanist or whatever it might be. And and by the same token, you also see that going the other way with, you know, suicide bombers or uh, people who, who do terrible things that go against what you might imagine to be all human nature, and yet somehow it's happened. So those are extreme cases. But what you see in other areas of behavior change is this incredible process of identity change. Um, For example, people who get into trouble with illicit drugs and uh, become drug addicts. Very often, what you see when they come out of it is something flips, something switches in their heads. This is not who I am anymore. And, And quite often, the identity shifts from being a drug user being someone who wants to help other drug users to recover from their, uh, from their drug use. So, um, I mean, I, I do a lot of exercise. I play tennis now. I used to play a lot of squash. My identity is very much and still is very much as someone who is fit um, and uh, you know looks after my uh, body. I'm not overweight or something. That's really important to me. So if I go, if I start to sort of slide in terms of my weight or something like that, then my identity as being a certain kind of person is an important factor in bringing me back to what I want to be. So, so if then rules, identities really important. Um, Other things that uh, are often uh, really important is surrounding yourself with the right cues, the right environment. Our behaviour is really very strongly environmentally conditioned social environment and physical environment so um, if you can uh if you can create an environment which is conducive to the sorts of behaviors that you're trying to achieve then that will also help
0: those are those are three examples oh very very good so just going back to your very first one when someone says, I would like to exercise more, I'd like to lose weight. Why is that so ineffective? And then why is it so effective when someone says, if I wake up in the morning, then I'll go for a walk, or if it's lunchtime, I will eat some vegetables and protein? Why, are, why is there such a discrepancy between the two in terms of effect?
1: The discrepancy arises from the, the fact that all behavior occurs in the moment and is, and is caused by whatever was happening the immediately preceding second or few seconds, okay? So, so if I say now, sitting here, uh, or if I'm with a counsellor uh, or a health coach, uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, that, yeah, I'm going to do more exercise, that's that moment. That's not the moment when, when the exercise needs to occur. You need to be in the right state of mind at that moment in order for the thing to occur, so so generally saying I'm going to I'm planning, I am planning I'm thinking of doing this is uh, is not going to be enough. So what you're trying to do is to set yourself up into a situation where it's it's not even a choice. Ideally, it's not, you know you've already made the choice. It's this is going to happen. So another way of thinking about it, it's it's a bit like um, even really heavy smokers go into a supermarket. They're not going to smoke, and what you find is that really heavy smokers in a in a supermarket don't even want to smoke. the the, the environment's not conducive to smoking. They don't smoke in supermarkets. You don't do that. Um, so that the 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 environment is conditioning their desires and so on. So your job in uh, in self control is to condition the, your desires at the moment in which uh, those those can come into effect. So so you set a routine, you set a plan You say, OK, you know, with your health coach, you might say, right. I, uh, when if I if I want to go for, a let's say, a 20 minute run, uh, then uh, when can I do that? You know, when where is there in my week that I can achieve that? And you say, OK, can you do that every week? Is that something that you can commit to on a regular basis or three times a week or whatever it might be? And then you make the plan and then you cement the plan so that that is a thing that you do. And one of the things that, uh, as you know, I'm sure, is is that uh, health coaches can do on top of giving you sort of a good advice on exactly how to do it, is what what health coaches do is they also add that very important extra ingredient of accountability. If it's just you and you're in bed and you're thinking, oh, shall I get up and do this thing? Uh, I don't think I'll bother. But if they're if they're going to come and see you, or if uh, they're going to have to report back to you and say what they did, then it's just another potentially important motivator at that precise moment. So accountability can come in. But th- so that's the key, really. It's all about understanding how how important and our, uh, how our behaviour and our desires are always in the moment.
0: Brilliant. Yeah um so in terms of identity the second point then i've I've heard a lot about how the narrative we tell ourselves is very important and like you know we need to think of ourselves as a central character in our own movie of life really so like why you know why is uh why is it so important to like follow through on what we say what what happens when we don't follow through on an intention and when we do what's going on there exactly
1: yeah, so, um, well, uh, it's also worth bearing in mind that we all slip, right? We Even, even uh, uh, you know, when we've got everything sorted out and we've done everything right, there will be occasions in which we slip and we have to be able to cope with those situations. So uh, actually the, the sort of metaphor that I use is uh, our, our, our rules and our identity have to be like a self-sealing tyre that um, so you could be like a balloon which a balloon is you know it's good because in the sense that uh, uh, it keeps the outside out and the inside in but if you have one little puncture it goes so that's no use on the other hand it could be you could have it like a leaky tire in which it just gradually deflates you have the odd cigarette here and there or you, you 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 don't go for the run or you don't do the thing you say you were going to do and then the whole thing just falls flat in the what you want is a situation where you've got a very clear boundary between uh, what your rule is and, obe- and following your, uh, um, your identity and your, your principles and your rules and a knot. Um, but if, uh, you know, as will happen, uh, there's a puncture, um, then it will close up. You, you know how to deal with it. Uh, your tie will close up and you'll be able to, re- you'll be able to uh, carry on so you have, to have, uh, you have to be prepared with ways of handling that. And one of the famous um, uh, sort of psychological principles that uh, people have operated on over the, uh, over the decades is called the abstinence violation effect, abstinence violation effect, which also works the other way in terms of not doing something that you said you were gonna do. Um, and the and this was Alan Marlatt, uh, famous uh, psychologist, and he said uh, his his proposition, which is right, you know, you, you see it all the time, is that once people have uh, have sort of lapsed, then they go, oh, you know, this is no good. I might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb, as as uh, people say. So and it and it all goes to hell in a handcart. Um, you know, their confidence goes and so on. So and and you need to be able to have ways of dealing with that and reasserting. And that's where, um, in my opinion, uh, things like uh, ACT or ACT come in, which is about recommitment. So acceptance and recommitment therapy, a really important part of that is recognising that commitment and recommitment are going to be uh, an important part of this journey uh, in the process. So so, um, uh, the identity is of your identity and your rules that you operate by, your principles, who you are, what, what matters to you. This is kind of like your umbrella that's that's uh, um, shielding you uh, and uh, giving you, um, uh, also mixing my metaphors, a sense of direction, um, but you also need to be able to operate at a more micro level, a more granular level with specific scenarios, situations, and how you cope with
0: that's interesting because I'm learning about self-compassion right now. And then uh, ACT is something I'll be learning about as well. And I've recently heard about the term related to addiction of the uh, the relapse uh, scenario. Uh, how do you define that again? Uh, well, there's the abstinence uh,
1: violation effect. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and this is, you know, as we see so often where a lapse A lapse turns into sort of full relapse, often quite quickly, but sometimes more slowly. But it's a you know in the smoking cessation, it's one of the reasons why we always try and get people to start a quit attempt with what we call the "not a puff" rule. You know that is the that is the idea that you know uh, once you've committed, once you said this is it, this is my quit date, you do you just move heaven and earth to avoid having that puff on a cigarette because we know how, you know,
0: dangerous that path can be. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a very common human experience where, because you break the rule in your head, you're like, oh, it's it's all for nothing. And you, you, you completely go the opposite way. And you might, you know, say I'm, I'm eating healthy. And then you have that one slice of cake and you end up having three or four or whatever. Um, So, something I found with being like disciplined and and following, you know, your kind of your values and, um, your, your own rules. I feel as though you become very, okay. I'll say I become very rigid and I become inflexible and something Mm. the more I get older is I value being flexible because Mm. life is dynamic. You need to adapt the person I think who is the most, how will I say effective person is like a Swiss army knife in a sense. So, um, how do you avoid? setting a rule, like I'm going to quit smoking and I'm going to, you know, be healthier, but then also not becoming like, I don't know, you know, uh, and addicted to potentially, you know, addicted to exercise, you know, how do you combat against that and remain flexible if it's important?
1: Yeah, that's I, I, yeah, a really, really good point. And, um, uh, and we do need to be flexible in our lives. And we also need to give ourselves a break, you know, uh, we, and we need treats. We all need treats. Give yourself treats. People should have treats. <laughs> you know, they make life fun, and and uh, and you know, you, you, I, I wouldn't want to paint a picture of someone's life as a sort of some, uh, you know, uh, Victorian sort of <laughs> sort of stuffed shirt because that that's no fun at all. I at least I guess it probably wasn't. Um, I think the the here it's really understanding when you need these rules and when you can be more flexible. And when it comes to things like smoking, then it turns out you do need these rules. Uh, you know, it just, and when smokers sort of say to me, oh, that doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem very fair. I say, well, I know it's not fair. It's, it just, re, you know, it's, it just is what it is. So life is what it is, uh, you know, but for the, but other things, then you can be more flexible. Um, so it just depends on what it is you're trying to achieve. And, and and, but it's about knowing what your rules are, what your principles are, what your boundaries are. And you, know, you can even extend that, I think, into other areas, for example, of your moral behavior. You know We talk about this thing called a moral compass. Um, and we know that some people have a very strong moral compass. So in a situation in which other people are doing something, which everyone really knows is wrong. You know, someone with a moral compass will say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. Um, and you, you know, they won't go along with the crowd. And we've, you know, and actually, we, you know, you see that cultures build up and we've, you know, there's lots of examples over history, um, recent history of, you know, famous people who've done terrible things, but actually in the context in which they were operating, they didn't think it was all that bad. I mean, they knew it was wrong. Um, and everyone knew it was wrong, but uh, the culture was such that you needed a moral compass in order to stop yourself doing it uh, or to uh, call out other people who are doing it. And so I think we do need these rules and we do need these boundaries. And it's, and it's really good as someone with agency to recognise, you know, we are people with agency and, and responsibility uh, and we, and we uh, can enact that. Um, up to a point. Uh, so, um, yeah, getting—I mean, you know—it's it's not a—it's not—it's there's it, it's not a sort of rigid uh, set of um, rules you can use but that
0: for all of this. But there are principles that you can operate. Yeah, you can—I um, guess—decide on how you want to be. In a sense, you can set out mm-hmm. like, but it's going to be a lot of trial and error, of course. Um, But I think, yeah, deciding for yourself, you know, you know, what you want to value as opposed to like, I guess, the very powerful marketing around smoking um, and and other products um, guiding you, you know, and you're just kind of like a a leaf in the wind almost. Um, Hmm. Yeah, you don't want to be a leaf in the wind.
1: (laughs) You want to you want to be who you who you have decided that you
0: want to be. Exactly. Yeah, that's the key thing, deciding who you want to be. So the, the Combi model. Is this your model um, and could you explain it a little bit and then how it ties into what we're talking about in terms of how change?
1: Sure. So um, the COMB model, uh, this was a model that Susan, Mickey and I developed um, as part of a, a larger project to help policymakers and, and people working with behaviour change to um, apply a set of principles from the research that people had done. Uh, to developing effective interventions. Um, and the Combi model is, uh, is actually just a sort of modern version, again, of a very well-understood principle. It's actually even built into the justice system in countries like the US and the UK. And, it, it, and uh, if I start with the justice system, if you want to... And I'm a big fan of Perry Mason and, you know, all these court, dra- courtroom dramas and detective stories. I love Colombo, <laughs> for example. Oh, it's a brilliant brilliant program anyway if you want to prove someone guilty of a crime you know most people who watch tv will know that you have to prove uh means capability uh and motive means opportunity sorry means opportunity and motive right well that's cuz they had to have been able to do the crime if they weren't you know they weren't even at the scene and had no access to the crime scene then they probably you know couldn't have done it um they needed to have the wherewithal to do it, I mean, kind of uh, capacity to do it, and they needed to have the motive. So con B is just taking that basic principle and saying, okay, for any of us to do anything at any time, you sitting here now and me sitting here now, um, we have to have three things in place. We have to be able to do it in terms of the capability. We have to you know, have the knowledge, the skills, the physique, uh, we have to, something about us, uh, you know, uh, uh, perceptual apparatus, all the rest of it, we have to be able to do it, the capability. If if we don't have that, it doesn't matter what else is is present, the behaviour can't occur. Um, we have to have the opportunity. We, if For example, um, if you uh, take a trivial example, uh, you know, in order to ride a bike, you have to have a bike. <laughs> um, so you need to have the space. You need to have the physical environment. You need to have the social environment uh, to enable the behavior to occur. Otherwise, it simply can't occur. You need to have the resources, the money, whatever it might be. So that's the opportunity. And then, last but certainly not least, you have to have the motivation. And that's a little different because it's not just having the motivation to do it, you have to be more motivated to do this behavior than any of the other competing behaviors that uh, are there at that time. So you have the capability, you have to have the opportunity, and you have to be more motivated to do this thing than anything else. And that ultimately dictates what all of us do all the time. So that is the fundamental sort of law of behavior, as it were. And so if you're trying to change your own behavior or help someone else to change their behavior, what you need to do is to figure out what will it take in order for this behavior to occur at that at the relevant moment. And over the course of certainly my career, Susan had the same experience, um, what you often find is that people who are developing interventions make assumptions. They say, oh, it must be capability or it must be motivation. Uh, for example, I used to do quite a lot of research into traffic accidents and uh, there was the, the Department of Transport in the UK was very interested in why young drivers, particularly male drivers, um, inexperienced drivers, were crashing their cars so often. And it is still the case, by the way, that um, in the UK, and I'm sure it's true in the United States, because your accident record is no better than ours. <laughs> They're both quite good on a world stage. But anyway, there's a greater than 50% chance that a novice driver is going to crash their car in the first year of driving. And that's why insurance rates are quite high is because you're probably gonna crash your car. Probably as a minor uh, you know, incident, but it could still be expensive. Anyway, the assumption was on the part of the Department of Transport, that the problem was a lack of skill because they'd only just learned to drive. And so we investigated that and we investigated uh, other factors as well. And what we found was actually, if anything, it was the more skillful novice drivers who are the ones who are more likely to crash their cars. And it wasn't really a matter of uh, in of lack of skill, it was motivation. It was because they had a actually, they imported from their lives, from their general demeanor, their whole attitude to life, a kind of carelessness or recklessness. It wasn't even even, it wasn't even kind of, um, they were wanting to be reckless or thrill seeking. It was just a sense of not caring enough, not being, um, not really paying attention to the safety issues. And so they'd be driving too fast, they'd be t- driving too close to the car in front, they'd be leaving too small a gap, all of these things that put people at risk of accidents. So, so the assumption was wrong. It wasn't capability, it was motivation. And so in, in, rather than um, investing money in advanced driver training for these people, which was a big waste of money, um, then, you know, we, what we needed to do is to deal with the motivational side. And if we can't deal with that, then let's just make cars and roads safer <laughs> and, and, and sort of engineer the accident out of the, or the injury out of the system. So you, so you, you have to, you use Combi to say, what will it take? What, what do I need to do to get this behaviour to change? Is it capability, opportunity, or motivation or some combination? And then you figure out how you're going to
0: change that. Great. So we talked about how important identity is. Um, How can you combine identity and motivation? Because from, you know, what I gather, well, it's a fact at this stage, but you know uh, in my work as a health coach, uh, the disease of obesity is not a lack of willpower. You know, it's much more complicated than that. And that's the usual assumption. Uh, And again, we're talking about assumptions. So how can someone combine identity and motivation to more effectively change their behavior
1: yeah so I so identity is a really important source of motivation it's kind of it's it's a, the it's a, it's a wellspring of wants and needs um, now as I say that, that it you if, it, if you could do it uh, with a with a client to uh, help them to change from an identity of someone who is struggling with their weight who is keeps trying things and failing to someone who's in whose identity has um, a set of rules around it about eating behaviors for example and 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 those were so deeply entrenched into their identity that they just simply wouldn't break them no they wouldn't break them any more than they would go out and shoot someone you know it's uh uh, or steal from a shop or something like that you know it, it just wouldn't do it you know so so if, if you think about identity as something that potentially has that level of power then you you are uh, you know at least halfway there to uh, getting the, the behavior changed the tricky thing is how to, how do how would you achieve that and sometimes sometimes identity changes with a kind of road to damascus experience a sort of aha moment, a sudden shift, and they go, and, and it's incredible, you know, people go from one thing to another, and that's great when that can happen. I mean, it's very hard to predict, it's sort of, it's like predicting an earthquake, you know, there's a lot of stuff probably going on under the surface before that happened, and then something imperceptible happened, and it was the final straw that got them to do it. Um, very often, identi- identity changes more gradually, you build confidence, and you know, as um, as you will know, one of the principles is is the idea of baby steps. is the idea of building on success, not on failure. So whatever, it, what, whatever uh, targets are being set, those targets are being set to be achieved, not to be failed. And then you see how it goes. and And I think also, you uh, you know. People have to feel good. You know, I mean, the whole purpose of all of this is that people are happy and, and contented and feel satisfied, fulfilled lives. If if life is just a chore, you know, it's just a miserable sequence of failures, this is not good. So a lot of what one's trying to do in these behavior, you know, this sort of behavior change is cre- create a sense in which this is actually good. I'm enjoying. They come back to see you because they want to, um, because they're getting something out of it. And yes, their progress might be slower, but, uh, but it is progress and, and their life is not being put on hold in the process. So, uh, you know, there are many different sort of trajectories to changes in identity. They're very gradual, very, you know, suddenly instantaneous, and sometimes it goes back and sometimes it goes forward. And, you know, you take side routes and sometimes you end up in cul-de-sacs but as we were kind of alluding to a bit earlier, if you if you um, always start from where you are and think, okay, this is where I am. You know, I may have just smoked a cigarette, I may have just eaten a bun, whatever it might be, or I may have been, you know, uh, on the wagon for, uh, you know, for three months. Whatever, the, wherever you are right now, it's always about thinking forward. What's what's the best I can do going forward? Not what have I failed to achieve in the past?
0: Brilliant, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, give yourself that bit of grace, be a bit self-compassionate and not, I guess, kind of flog it. We're talking a lot about animals here, but don't flog the dead horse, you know, like just uh, let that uh, mistake or, you know, that habit that you, you, you aligned with, just leave it be and focus on yeah. moving forward, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's OK. I think we need to I think a lot of us need to be more compassionate to ourselves. Some some people need to be less compassionate. <laughs> I could think of a few politicians who could do with being a little harder on themselves. But um, most people uh, really could do with being a bit more compassionate. And they could say, look, it's OK. You know, it's OK. Um, whatever. You know, This is where I am. What do I want going forward out of the situation? And how can I best achieve it?
0: yeah yeah i feel as though you're talking a lot about mindfulness as well because if you're not really slowing down and you're kind of caught up in a sort of like almost like a habit loop and you're not thinking about what you're doing then you can easily go off track and you know uh not really change the behavior how you'd like to um do you so something uh i'm just thinking about is like identity is very important it's it's a big motivator so do you think there's like people have a a lack of identity with like less religion nowadays is like it's not as common and we're kind of like society is very segregated and you know it's, it's it's all like as though i feel as though large companies like uh social media and um these kind of things are like pitting us against each other do you feel as though that could be a cause of why something like obesity is on the rise um or is it something much more complicated than a simple answer like that <laughs> uh, i i think that um, i don't
1: think there's any less of this sort of identity i don't think you know we, we think about ourselves less if anything i suspect that nowadays people um think about themselves and image themselves more uh because certainly we you know when i was growing up you probably most people probably wouldn't hear their own voice recorded they wouldn't hear their voice come back to uh, and when people you know people used to say, "Oh, I hate the sound of my own voice when I hear it recorded um now you know even young kids are used to hearing the sound of their voice they're used to seeing themselves uh in in videos i mean that was another thing so so i I think that in some sense we are more uh, uh inward looking or at least we're we're more self reflective at least in a superficial way than, than we were um i also I'm not sure. That there is less of uh, less identity around um, uh, what spirituality or, or uh, humanity or things outside themselves than the war there was. I, I think that maybe the focus is moving on to different things, climate change, for example, um, or identities in re- in relation to one's um, racial group or uh, or sexual orientation or whatever. So I, I think there's there's probably more of that. And the risk there, potentially, w- with all of these different identities, is that they can become fractured and and not necessarily have a coherence. The so thing about a very often a religious identity is it includes a moral code. It, it's, it's a lot of stuff that's sort of wrapped up in a religious identity. Um, some of it good, some of it not so good. But um, but it's it's more you know if you if you look at Islam, for example, it, it's it's it is not just a religion; it's also very much a moral code uh, around how you you know treat other people. So so um, uh, you know I think if we to the extent that we become more secular, uh, there's a risk that you know maybe um, you know we become more identified with certain issues like you know saving the planet or whatever it might be. I don't know; that's a, that's that speculation, but. Um, but how far these things would be uh, contributing to health issues, I'm not sure. I, I think that with um, the obesity epidemic, uh, I, I think that if you look at the trajectory of it and how, it, how you know, where it sort of, when it really took off, um, I think you can, in different countries, I think you can see a lot of it was very much environmentally conditioned. You know the, the problem is with humans, of course, is that for most of our evolution, our animal brain and the early part of our human brain um, was brought up in food scarcity. So um, hunger is uh, is there to get us to eat, um, but also so is enjoying food and 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 the pleasure of of eating food and as food becomes more palatable for our animal brain, more sugars, more fats, and so on, the the, the, uh, calorie density of foods is higher. The opportunity to eat high-calorie-dense foods and feel fulfilled in a tasty meal is greater. Then it's really putting a bit of a strain on the clever part of our brain to sort of say, well, hold your horses here. You seem to have now had to, you know, Change from a 34 waist to a 36 waist, you know, and is that what you want? So, and, and then you put you put on top of that a society in which everyone else seems to be like that as well. I mean, uh, if you go to France, there's far less obesity, obviously, than uh, there the is in the United States or uh, an Ireland, ditto, and uh, the UK, ditto. Um, you know, if you go to uh, particularly some parts of the United States, then the the average person is overweight, and and so you 're a bit kind of weird if you 're thin in fact, I remember going to um, uh, uh, to uh, where was it it was dallas actually and um and someone actually commented <laughs> that i was you know to me that I was skinny and i 'm not skinny <laughs> i'm actually just a sort of normal weight so you know you've got so you've got a whole range of facts all feeding on themselves and you've got um, industries who uh whose job it is to make as much profit as possible for their shareholders, because that's their job. Um, and that means getting people to eat as, lot, as much high-calorie foods as possible if, if what they do is produce high-calorie foods. So, so I think that a, a lot of it is around the, the difficulty that our animal brain has in coping with uh, the uh, environment in which we found ourselves or we've created for ourselves.
0: Yeah. It's it's scary to think that the environment plays such a role, and then not, so many people are like so unaware of the impact it has. Um, and something I want to go back to in a second is addiction, because I know it's like uh, something you've done a lot of work in. But I'm just thinking of a company like McDonald's, or you know, um, any any company that's good with behavior change, like TikTok. These kind of companies that are very powerful and very like very wealthy. <clears throat> I imagine that a college like yours has a certain amount of resources. They're trying to do research for for the good of humanity <laughs> and then i imagine on the opposing side which isn't, isn't the case but that's just how i look at it is that like mcdonald's has its own team of scientists who are doing their own research how is, is, is are these companies so effective at sort of just having their way with people um like do they have their own research teams like where do these people come from who are so effective is, is it like someone like you who just decided i'm much more interested in money, and they transitioned over from working for a college to like McDonald's, or you know, how does that how does that come about that they're so effective?
1: Yeah, well, they got a lot, as you say, they got. Well, the thing is, they're pushing at an open door. You know that, uh, that 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 they're working with our animal brain, and and they're they're a figure that you know it's not that hard to be honest to to uh, uh, because the animal brain isn't that clever to. You know, to um, produce products that uh, tap into it, and obviously the you know, tobacco industry has, uh, does this par excellence. It's you know, it's just fantastic for it. It's got this chemical nicotine that uh, uh, that uh, attaches itself to receptors in the brain and gets people to want to take nicotine in that form. And you know, and and it's not not massively hard to uh, then to build a really successful business on that basis. Um, I think, but but, uh, and you know, you raise I think a really interesting question for me as to why, why knowing what we know, I mean, let's let's leave McDonald's aside for a minute because you know it's a food company and people like food and so on and, and people enjoy enjoy hamburgers and so on. But if we look at take take the tobacco industry, where most people who smoke, the vast majority of people smoke, wish they'd never started. Um, most people who smoke don't enjoy it. Uh, they're spending a lot of money. On something that's killing them. So the question is you're, you're thinking about a career choice. You've just left university. Now, where shall I go and work? Oh, I know, I'll go and work for the tobacco industry. That will be a good career choice. Who's doing that? Who are these people? And it seems bizarre. Uh, and yet, clearly, people do. And obviously, the money is, is a big factor. Um, I think it goes back to. What I was uh, saying earlier about moral compass. I think that there are ways in which, without a very strong moral compass, any of us can justify, justify just about anything that we do. We can say, ah, oh, well, you know, smokers choose to smoke, or I'm going to go into that part of the tobacco industry, which is about trying to reduce the harmfulness of my product, you know, or, or the product. So I'm trying to do good. Um, you know, the, the, we're great at making excuses for ourselves. Um, and, but, and especially when the money's very good. So, so I think, I think you know, it, it's, and it may not even be a sort of us and then thing. I mean, I, I have to uh, you know, own up to the fact that when I graduated, actually, I'm probably quite a good example here. When I graduated university, I went into the civil service in the UK um, and uh, I, did, I was put into the Ministry of Defence and my first job was arms sales right? So that and that was not something that I would have wanted to do. And I wanted to be a civil servant and to be helping with policy, and I'd have quite liked to go into health, but I was put into the Ministry of Defence. Anyway, um, I I didn't immediately then say, right, that's it, I quit. You know, I'm not going into the Ministry of Defence to sell arms. I was given a job to do, and I tried to do it as best as I could. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that's what happens to people. I mean, I did leave, obviously, ultimately, um, quite after a couple of years. But, you know, in another life or in another situation, maybe I would have carried on. I don't know. Uh, so, so I think it's, you know, we don't want to be too hard on people uh, for making choices in the situations in which they find themselves that then end up being bad. Um, the only real defence against that, I think, ultimately, is a strong moral compass
0: yeah yeah being clear on, on your values and i feel as though mm-hmm. you're showing your honesty by by declaring like the <laughs> conflict of interest and in your job you had previously um so yeah i guess it comes back to what we said already about like deciding who you want to be and then you know just making the best decisions you can from there giving yourself grace as well um so i know addiction is like a huge topic we could do a whole conversation about that um i guess something i want to ask you specifically is. You talked, you had a a YouTube video with, uh, I think it was your son, and uh, Mm. you're talking about para addictions. Mm. So Mm. could you just talk about like how to know, I guess, when you may need to start thinking about, okay, is this some habit that I'm addicted to? And then what's a para addiction as well?
1: Yeah. So um, having been editor in chief of the journal Addiction uh, for uh, over a decade, um, it has been an important part of my research life and one of the things that you uh, uh it, it occupies your mind as a as someone working in the field of addiction is in fact trying to figure out what addiction is and and different people have different views and i have different views from actually other people who worked on the journal um because uh we you know it's 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 a multifaceted thing but at the end of it well well let me go back um Decades ago, addiction was actually relatively straightforward in terms of how it was viewed. It was viewed as something like this. You uh it was uh you would start to take a drug, because drug addiction was the only thing that was considered to be an addiction. You'd start to take a drug for enjoyment or kicks or whatever it might be, and then over time you would be, you would develop physiological tolerance to the effects of the drug. So you need to take more and more and more of the drug in order to get the high that you're seeking. And as your body is adjusting to the presence of the drug, that means that if you don't have the drug, your body goes into a sort of withdrawal syndrome where you get DTS or if you're an alcoholic or the uh, um, you know. Uh, old turkey, you know, the sort of goosebumps and things, flu symptoms, you really feel really bad if you can't get hold of your drug. And so now you go from wanting the drug because it gives you a high to needing the drug just to survive, just to stay normal, and actually literally to survive because some drug withdrawal is actually fatal. And that was how they viewed addiction. And what we realised after a bit was that that's not it at all. Um, If it was that, if a drug addiction or addiction was just that, it would actually be really easy to cure people. All you need to do is to get people into a hospital, give them some medication, help them ease them through the withdrawal symptoms until they come out the other end, out they come the other end, cured. Thank you very much. And that's not what happens. It would also be the case that the severity of the withdrawal symptoms, would predict relapse, and it doesn't. Uh, so, so what is what is going on with, uh, with uh, drug addiction? And then why is it that people also seem to get addicted to other things like gambling? And so they, uh, we, we sort of turn things around a bit and now understand addiction as a whole range of different um, mechanisms that all have one final common uh thing in one final thing in common, final common pathway, as we call it. And that is that um, the person who is addicted experiences, for whatever reason, a repeated, powerful motivation to engage in the behaviour. And that is a chronic thing. It just lasts, you know, a long time. And uh, and it's and it may be the withdrawal symptoms are contributing to that. I mean, they definitely do in some cases. It may be that there's something else completely that's contributing to it. And smoking is a rather complex case because there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Um, but what it means is that if you focus on the, it's, it's this powerful motivation that's at the heart of addiction. The other side of it is that, and, and this is where not everyone agrees, is that it's to do something which is ultimately harmful or could be harmful. Um, and the reason why I think that's important is because if it wasn't for that, why would we care? You know, if, if, if you're doing something that um, has no particularly harmful consequences, who, who cares? You know, knock yourself out, do it, it's great. Um, so um, if you, but if you bring the harm part of it, in, you've got to think, well, okay, how much harm? You know, is it just sort of slight inconvenience? Is it just costing you a bit of money? Was it ruining your life? Is it killing you? And that's where we, we come to the understanding of addiction as something that has to sort of pass some threshold, both in terms of the powerful, the strength of the motivation. how How much of a grip has it got on your life? And how much harm could that be doing you? So we now accept that you know smoking, cigarette smoking, is addictive because it creates very powerful urges to smoke, and it kills half the people who do it and don't manage to stop. So that is pretty harmful. That's definitely in. Uh, heroin addiction, as we know, uh, or opiate addiction, that's definitely in. Um, gambling addiction, in my opinion, and most of the people I work with, that's definitely in because gambling ruins lives, uh, it totally destroys a lot of people's lives. Um, clearly, you know, as with smoking, as with heroin, as with gambling, there are people who don't become addicted. There are people who can do it and they don't. They you know they can take it or leave it. Fantastic, good for them. Same with alcohol. Most people who drink aren't alcoholics, but there are people who become addicted. So where does that leave behaviours like um, going onto the internet or using Facebook or TikTok or, uh, you know, uh, playing adventure games or horse riding or whatever it might be? This is where you've got something which is, you'd say, yeah, it, it's certainly got a bit of a grip on you. You know, it's, uh, you're, used, you're do, spending a lot of time doing it, you may not even be enjoying it. You may be doing it because of a compulsion you know, that, it, that it has uh, um, created for itself because of the way the brain works, uh, which is something I was discussing with my son Jamie in that, in that podcast, that you know, crucially, an important insight is to understand that things that are rewarding, in quotes, don't have to be pleasurable. They can be rewarding without being pleasurable. Uh, and so uh, because they, what they tap into is a part of your brain that creates an urge to do that thing without you even feeling any positive satisfaction. So, yeah, a lot of the time you can, you can find yourself compelled to do things or it feels like it, and it could be quite harmful. You know, it could mean that you don't get your homework done or it could mean that um, you're not as effective at, uh, at your job as you might otherwise be. But are we going to call that addiction? Because if you do that, it kind of lets, this This is the thing really, it kind of lets the, the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry, the gambling industry, you know, the drug cartels, a little bit off the hook because they can, they're sort of saying, well, you know, yeah, okay, tobacco is addictive, but then so is going on TikTok, so is butter, you know you think, well, actually, you know, there's a massive difference between smoking and going on TikTok. You know, very few people die from going on TikTok. Literally 7 million people a year die from smoking. So, so the idea of the para-addiction, is it's, it's like it's got a lot of the qualities of addiction. There's, you know, strong motivation to do it. There's a degree of harm. But it doesn't reach that threshold. That we would say, actually, you know what? This is an addiction. This needs treating. This needs us to have extensive, comprehensive public health measures to 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 combat it. Um, Now, that's not to say that you know there aren't people who are so deeply embedded in TikTok or so deeply embedded in Facebook or various other behaviours that it's not ruining their lives and they they wouldn't benefit from treatment. And I think in those situations they should. Receive treatment and support and help to help with it. But by and large, that behaviour um, doesn't have those qualities. So that that was where we were bringing in this idea of the. So, I think, well, what should we call these things? They they kind of like addiction, but they're not. They're not kind of you know they don't fully qualify.
0: Yeah, the compulsions almost. It sounds like so. Yeah, they have like on a spectrum. They have a negative maybe outcome over the long term, but they don't. Have an obvious negative outcome, such as gambling or alcohol or smoking. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. brilliant, Robert. Thank you so much for for your time. Uh, is there anything that we didn't go over? Anything you'd like to direct people to or mention?
1: Oh well, since you ask, <laughs> um, so well, it was a couple of years ago now, Jamie, uh, my son Jamie, uh, who we, you mentioned. Um, and I wrote a book called Energize, The Secrets of Motivation, a very short book, which uh, you, you, uh, is available in all good uh, bookshops and Amazon and so on. Um, and uh, it's written as a dialogue between Jamie and me. So Jamie's taking the sort of the uh, the perspective of the reader, and the re- this was Jamie's idea actually. He'd seen that John Cleese had done this in a book on depression, which he found really worked, and the, and and it does work in in. In this sort of area, because people come to books like this with so many preconceptions that it's really hard as as an author to sort of deal with these just by, you know, boring paragraphs. So Jamie asks the question that the reader might be asking, might be thinking of asking. So anyway, that book is is out. And um, we're just about to publish in the next couple of months uh, a sequel, which is specifically about the animal brain. It's called React, Harness the Power of the Animal Brain. Uh, So that'll be out soon. And both of them are on, uh, well, you can get, they'll be able to get them from Amazon, but the the publisher's Silverback.
0: Brilliant, yeah. That just reminds me of a book I read and uh, it's like a dialogue as well. And I have read that book twice and I plan to read it again. So I really enjoy that style. So I'll definitely uh, include that in the the links um, in the info for the podcast. Um, So this has been great. Thank you uh, very much for your time, Robert. Thank you.